0: I'm Allison Koff, and you're listening to episode three of Growing Up. If this is your first time tuning in, we're a podcast featuring growers, entrepreneurs, and technologists focused on the indoor farming industry. In this episode, I chat with Rick Leidendorf, the president and co-founder of Global Growables, Inc. Global Growables designs, builds, and manages indoor hydroponic vertical farms made from recycled freight containers.
1: Well, what we do is we convert freight containers, which are 40 feet by 8 feet wide by 9 and a half feet tall, and we convert those into hydroponic gardens. And then we place those hydroponic gardens, we call them mobile growables because they are very mobile, and we place them on location at either a school, uh, preferably an underserved school in a community. Or in, at a church or other places within the community where we can educate, feed, and donate, make donations to the, to the uh, local community. And uh, what we do is really try to um, you know, solve some of the issues in the industry with regards to um, educating kids to change behavior. And in essence, the food that we grow out of the box we actually sell it to our clients in a in another company that I have called America's Healthiest Clubs and we sell that produce directly to the executive chefs of private country clubs throughout the country so it has a really interesting model in that it's a self-sustaining model it has a recurring revenue stream it feeds and educates kids it changes behavior and at the end of the day All that happens with uh, a one-time acquisition cost or donation from whether it be members of a club or we might even fund the the box itself.
0: And so is there an education component around it? Like is there there programming related to the box or is it just sort of like what's the objective when somebody actually buys or gets a box Um, and then the education component of what they're growing, how they're growing it?
1: Right, that's a great question. Um, you know, again, going back to our purpose, our mission is to really uh, cure childhood obesity, and and as a as a for profit company, our goal obviously is to generate the revenue and manage the box and automate as much as we can. But we bring in our partners, and we have nonprofit partners like Fit to Be Kids, or Cake, or CCAP and some of these other organizations that are their whole purpose and mission is to educate kids in the school after school summer camps that sort of thing but at the end of the day we work with the nonprofits who then provide their curriculum and in the case of fit to be kids we use the seven dimensions of wellness and where there's a current structure and then from there we add curriculum whether that be in classroom after school uh, or summer camps and that sort of thing so we have Uh, a certain amount of curriculum that already goes with it. The question is, how does that incorporate into the existing um, uh, culture that they have or their current academic process or their current um, curriculum that they might have already developed for nutrition and, in some cases, fitness? So at the end of the day, it's it's really a combination of, of what we bring to the table, our nonprofits, and then what's already available within the school system.
0: That's very cool. And it's, it's funny, it's a nice segue because our first episode was with uh, Teens for Food Justice based here in New York. So another company that's working specifically with schools, but they're doing rooftop greenhouses um, or greenhouses located near a school, depending on where they're located. Um, yeah. But now you guys are operating though, as a for profit. So maybe let's talk a little bit about business model, um, how you guys make money. What's the business model? What's the strategy for growth?
1: Yeah, God. it's a great question because, you know, in this world, it's all about the money. I mean, regardless of whatever our mission might be, you still have to find the funds. And we've we've found we've got some uh, private investors that have invested into the box and the company, I should say, with the idea that their money would be used to build a box and then we would deploy and manage the box. And so we as the managing partner will generate um, what looks to be about $100,000 worth of revenue per year of which we'll donate $25,000 of that to the school in the form of food that they can actually use in the cafeteria so they can reduce their food costs or they can sell it in a farmer's market environment, that sort of thing, and do fundraisers instead of doing cakes and cookie sales. Maybe we do fresh Mm -hmm herbs and greens and lettuces and that sort of thing. So it's a a different model in that regard. But if if we donate the box or we place the box on location, I should say, then we're the managing partner and it's our responsibility to make sure that we can maximize the yield and, more importantly, make sure that the executive chef at the country clubs or the high-end restaurants get what they want when they want it. And so that as a so call call it a um, a community outreach model, we we like to call that their lunchbox, and um, and then we have another model which is we will rent or lease the unit. So depending on who the uh, the buyer is, it could be a country club where we put it on location, or it could be on behalf of a school or church or another um, community outreach. But this is an opportunity for the club or the buyer to rent or lease that. And if they do that, then of course, there's um, less costs involved, and then we can generate more revenue for the school because they've been able to take care of the operating cost in terms of the rent or lease. And then the third option is we just sell the units. Mm -hmm. And if we sell rent or lease, we always provide a managed service. And that is very important for many, many reasons. First of which is, safety uh, and the control of the food, making sure that we know what's growing, who's been in the box, how many people have touched it. So if there's any, you know, issues with foodborne illnesses, etc., we can almost guarantee it didn't come from us. So safety is a big deal. Um, And the other piece, of course, is knowing how to manage the yield so we can, you know, uh, Totally understand exactly how much food can be grown in the box and what that yield looks like. So, from a financial perspective, it's very important for us to know what's in there and, and plan the nursery and the microgreens and the growing of of all of our what we call riblets, which are vertical towers.
0: So you just touched on things that lead me to three different questions. So I want to start with one is. Um, so you just touched on microgreens. What else are you growing or what sort of microgreen selection have you found to be successful? Um, what does the crop selection look like?
1: Yeah, first of all, we the way we've designed our container, um, we've got about 30 feet by 8 feet of grow space. And in that 30 feet, we've got 168 towers with 14 of these little pods that we can grow. So there's there's about 2,300 pods that grow in that in the grow space. And that's gonna be, of course, leafy greens and the herbs and that sort of thing. Um, but when you talk about the microgreens, we have two microgreen racks. Each one have five rows with three trays. So we can get uh, basically 30 microgreen trays growing in the microgreens um, separate from the actual grow space. And with microgreens, of course, they grow quickly, so we, we can grow just about anything you want from radishes to broccoli to any seed that we can put in there, we can grow a microgreen. And of course, the flavor is very important to the chef, but also from a medical perspective, the nutrient density of that plant in its, in its microgreen form provides a, a significant amount of nutrients where you don't necessarily have to grow the entire broccoli plant to get the benefit and have the proteins that you're going to get from broccoli, for example. So, and then in addition to that, we have a nursery, which has a, um, eight trays that each has about 200 pods each, which means we can grow 1,600 seeds in our nursery and stage those little baby plants into the grow space when it's time. So we we're looking to really manage and, and monitor the yield. And, of course, that's why we came to you, to help us manage that yield in that farm.
0: I want to come back to this idea of towers and grow technology. Um, aside from using AgriList, have, tell me about, this is a insert what's in the box joke, um, but what's in the <laughs> box? <laughs> um, what? what is the technology that you guys, you know, is it proprietary? Is it something you've built yourselves? Are you choosing other vendors?
1: Right. Well, and this is a very interesting question because, you know, you can you can grow things horizontally, and that's where I kind of got my start when I learned about this technology through uh, the Naples Ritz Carlton, and I went to see their crop box, and it was growing using uh, fluorescent lights and a horizontal trays which were about ten feet long, and and I and I found it very cumbersome, and. That So I went to another group called Vertical Harvest, who's out of Alaska, and we started working together on designing a box for the lower states or the lower 48s. And and it was also a horizontal box. But what I found with that box was the difficulty in getting the plants out of their respective area and lifting them up and pulling them out and then harvesting them. Because when you're crouching down on your knees or you're seven feet in the air it's not easy to reach in 30 or 40 inches. Um, As somebody that's uh, smaller in stature is gonna have a very difficult time. So we went a different route, even though it was contrary to what I always believed about growing, and that was we went to a vertical environment and then redesigned the box so you have easy access to each one of these bays. And like I said, we've got 168 towers, or riblets we call them, in the box and and it's very easy to walk into a bay, grab a tower, lift it off of its if its peg, and then walk down a twenty-four inch alley to the workspace, lay it in a tray, and now within seconds you're harvesting fourteen pods whether you're planting and replanting or you're harvesting and, and removing, we've got a workstation that's designed to really, really minimize the amount of time it takes to harvest and, and really um, work in that grow space. So we, that's, I think, one differentiator that we're, we're, um, we've designed that is proprietary. And then the other piece is we've taken and we're using liquid-cooled LED lights using a chiller to keep the cool water flowing through the LED lights, which does a couple of things. One, it extends the life of the LEDs, but secondarily what it does is it keeps the LED lights cooler so the box itself is cooler so the air conditioning unit doesn't have to kick on as much. And <clears throat> so this chiller concept really I think is unique. Now it's added a few dollars in cost, but I think what it's done is, is extended the, co- uh, the, the life of the LEDs and it's reduced our operating costs. Um, and then the third thing that makes us really unique is our R32 insulation. We've, we've completely retrofitted this to um, increase the, the R factor so that it helps maintain the temperature in the side of the box and again, lowering the cost because of course in these containers, the biggest cost you have is electricity. And so those three things really are proprietary they're very unique to what we do and we've seen all the systems out there so we know what 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 is out there and and at the end of the day this is uh, become a very very um, interesting uh, unit for us and we're just rolling them out so I don't have a lot of data to tell you how it grows how well it grows what the kilowatt charges are uh, only because we're just launching our first unit so um, which is being delivered here into Orange County in two weeks and it's going into the Saddleback Church where there's already an existing garden and there's um, a school on property and so this is a, a church that actually makes donations throughout the, the county of Orange County. And, uh, but we're really excited about that but uh, the real proof is in the in the pudding, right? It's It's how easy is it for somebody to work in the box because the second highest cost of course is your labor. Now, if we can get volunteers, that's great, but if you have labor costs, you want to minimize the amount of time it takes to plant, transplant, and harvest, and clean, of course. And I think that's where we are going to be uh, different than our competitors in, the, in terms of how we lay out the box.
0: So now we're on my third question, because technology was two. Um, so th- And three is a great segue, because I want to talk about labor. Um, so one of my big questions with all sort of container or, or any type of small scale distributed farming is always centered around labor and how are you finding the labor and what's your labor model? Because I think one of the challenges with scale is always around who's going to be the one that's skilled enough to operate these boxes, right? And especially in your the first of your business models where you know you're on the purchasing end or investors are on the purchasing end and you're on the operational and sales end, um, then you're on the hook for finding somebody who's gonna run this thing profitably, right?
1: Correct.
0: How, how are you finding the labor market? Are you training internally? What's your plan for developing sort of the right workforce for, um, for Global Growables?
1: Yeah, first we have a, an expert horticulturist and a hydroponic expert. So they being the technical side of things, they're the oversight and management of the box and ultimately responsible for anything and everything that's grown. But the idea with all this automation, which uh, from my mobile phone, I can turn on and off LED lights, air conditioning units, I can check temperature, EC, pH balances. I can pretty much manage the box and the growing from my, my uh, iPhone. But the reality is um, you have to have expertise in terms of A, knowing what to grow, how long it's gonna take, and understanding bugs and pesticides or any of those other variables that might enter into the equation. But once, you've, um, once we have that um, in place, the idea is to find an on-site manager, somebody that works at the school, a volunteer, a mom, a parent, uh, a child, somebody that's actually uh, capable of, of, of managing the overall labor, if you will. And, and the idea, when you're in a school environment, is to find volunteers, thereby reducing the cost. Now, if I can't find a volunteer, then we're ultimately responsible. And from what I understand, and I've been around this for a few years now and asked a lot of questions, it's anywhere from 15 to 20 man hours per week to manage a box that's gonna produce about 12,000 pounds of produce a year.
0: Wow. I'm curious about what you view as the differentiating factor among your competitors because there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of hype I think right now in container farming um, or farming within a container. Um, What is the thing that makes you different than anybody else doing this?
1: I think it's our business model you know I'm I'm less inclined to sell a box now I will of course but my model is really going into the community and getting community support and that's a big deal when you're talking about a country club so I think that my model is unique in that my customers from my other business are all private country clubs throughout the country and that member or that club is really a representation of the top one percenters of that market and what that means is the members of a private country club who come to the club for a great culinary experience want the freshest most organic and locally grown produce and the clubs are very philanthropic and so with that in mind the clubs and the members actually have the ability and the wherewithal to make a donation to the nonprofit Fit to mm-hmm. be Kids, for example, where now there's no debt cost or net, no debt service on the box. They get the, um, the write-offs, the tax deductions, if you will. We now then can sell product to the club at a lower cost than they're paying now because all we're really talking about is operational cost. And so that model is very unique. And that's the low-hanging fruit, in my mind, for my business, my current customers, which are private country clubs throughout the country.
0: Now, private country clubs primarily operating in suburban communities, right, suburban locations, close enough to dense city populations. Um, Talk to me about what you see the future of ag looking like. Is it a focus on small-scale distributed urban farming or suburban farming, or is it some combination of the both? And and just tell me a little bit about long-term vision
1: yeah I think you have to really look at the market as geographic you know in the Midwest upper Midwest Northeast Northwest you're talking about climate that doesn't allow you to grow year-round whereas where I'm I live in California uh, many of my clients are in Florida and those are the two biggest agricultural communities so it's it's really difficult I shouldn't say it's difficult it's less likely to put indoor controlled environment growing into that area when those goods and services are available you know year-round having said that I think again the what I see as the opportunity is cold weather locations for sure because now you can bring uh, uh, fresh produce I shouldn't say produce fresh leafy greens herbs and microgreens to a, a market and 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 those perishables are are now fresh and locally grown and so there's definitely a model there Um, on the bigger scale I really do see places like urban produce and others that are um, large-scale indoor growing I see that for large metropolitan areas the rooftop gardens of course and, and whether it's a container or a greenhouse or some other kind of indoor growing using hydroponics I definitely see this as a long-term trend as water becomes more precious, as land becomes more precious, as food costs go up. All of those variables, that is definitely changing things. And of course, with solar power, you can now reduce the cost and, and get off the grid potentially. So, But long-term, I, I see growing food locally at close to the source, meet them where they are. That's really the strategy. Whether it's a hospital that's feeding their patients schools feeding their kids churches feeding the the their constituents uh, ultimately the closer you are to the food or to the to the people the less transportation you have the more eco-friendly it is of course and your costs are definitely going to be less than if you have to do the transportation so but long term, I mean, uh, if you look at all of the reports and the studies and the white papers and, and you know this is a, is a very um, exponentially growing business. And, and I again see this on the large scale, but for me, it's really about servicing the local market, whether that's urban or a or rural area. It really again doesn't matter. And, and um, with over what 13,000 nonprofits out there, there are a lot of people out there trying to figure out how to feed their their, um, their their local community. There are a lot of organizations out there trying to figure out a way to monetize this. And whether they're growing gardens in the soil in the summertime or putting it in indoor growing, I think you're starting to see more and more interest in this agricultural sort of environment, more and more farmers. In fact, I work with a group called Plantrition Project. And this is where the doctors, the doctors that you might have uh, very well known, plant-based whole foods kind of doctors, um, they are actually educating other doctors and medical professionals about the power of plant-based nutrition. So it's not about just growing food for me because you can get food anywhere. It's about growing the right food with that nutrient density that's going to help reverse chronic illnesses or prevent chronic illnesses. And I believe long term, that if we can educate our kids about nutrition and tell them that a carrot comes from the ground or it can be grown in the the water and it doesn't come from Walmart, that these kids are gonna grow up to learn how to eat better and they won't necessarily grow up to be sick or overweight or obese.
0: I love that, I love that a lot. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about some of the challenges that maybe you're facing or the industry is facing as a whole.
1: I think what it is, the costs, you know, the cost to build. And, um, you know, LED lights are are cheaper than they've been for in a long time. Well, they've never been any cheaper. And the cost of LEDs are a very big part of that. They need to come down. Um, the cost of electricity, obviously that's increasing each year depending on the market you're in. So with solar power and alternative energy sources, you can bring those costs down. But um, I think the for me it's been design build because there's really nobody out there that you can call, well, I should say there are very few people out there that have the expertise in indoor farming to help engineer a box. And I went through that for about two years uh, before I really figured out on my own what this needs to be. So technology for sure, the cost and uh, of build out is important. And then I think the biggest problem is education it's uh, trying to find people that are willing to be part of this Uh, there's lots of volunteers lots of people that are interested in it but you know the commitment to actually sustainably manage and operate these um, these growing areas are there's a challenge and we see that all the time with schools school gets excited they build a garden their kids are in school for nine months and then they leave and it dies Mm. and it does not back We see that so often, and there's so many volunteers out there willing to help, but the problem is you have to have somebody to manage it, and that's why automation, I think, is the secret to this, that it solves the problem of trying to figure out how, when, and where. It's just now all you really have to do is figure out what you want to grow. And uh, once you've done that, then it's pretty automated, and it's very systematic. Um, It's certainly going to have issues with pesticides or or bugs, and you're going to have to deal with that. But you know, for the most part, it's uh, automation is really going to solve a lot of those those issues. But um, so anyway, that's kind of my off the cuff. Answered to your question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Last question I would ask is: So, what is um, what is your company's plan for scale? Like, you just mentioned that the first box is arriving in in Orange County, you know, yeah. any day now. Um, what comes next? How ideally, how many would you love to deploy in a year or five years?
1: Yeah, good question. Well, if if we got to a couple of hundred units, that's a very sizable valuation. I mean, we're talking probably $20 million valuation. Um, so if we can scale to, in 2018, put out 30 or 40 boxes, I would be happy with that. It could get much larger. I mean, we're working with the Los Angeles Unified School District, and a pilot program for them could turn into 30 or 40 boxes for one school. So there's a tremendous opportunity, and we have some manufacturers that can scale with us, but uh, it really all depends on the 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 um, the combination of rentals leases purchases and community outreach boxes if everybody wants a free box then we have to raise the capital if people wanna buy a box then we have working capital Mm -hmm. i you know I like to keep uh, the working or the uh, investment capital at a minimum and I've seen some of our competitors out there raising tens of millions of dollars and are they making money yet I don't know do they have an overhead that's that's uh, preventing them from making money not sure but but at the end of the day you know we'd like to get to a couple hundred boxes you know within a couple years
0: i think there's an interesting divide in the industry right now over whether um indoor farmers should even seek venture capital funding you know the tens of millions of dollars that you're seeing um i mean i'm actually curious generally what your thoughts are on like would you guys seek vc money if you could
1: eee maybe it it it, again all depends i i'm of the mindset that you know if you can grow organically then that's best if i don't have to bring in equity or debt financing you know it's it's better for me now that's all again contingent on Hmm. the combination of our customers if i have 10 customers that want to buy a box then i've got nice working capital and i i can grow organically if uh, if I have uh, customers that want to lease the box, then we have investors that will provide debt financing. But, um, and, but again, the reality, and again, going back to my business model, I'm looking for the top one percenters of this world that are very philanthropic and willing to give back and, and, and put their money to work where a $100,000 investment is going to generate a million dollars worth of revenue over a 10-year period that $100,000 donation to a community-based solution, a community outreach program, is gonna generate a recurring cash flow and that money can be used for whatever the school is looking to do. And when you start talking about making a single donation and it has a recurring revenue stream, now you're talking about a business model that bridges the gap between the haves and the have-nots, between the the wealthy and the, the underserved and more importantly, it connects uh, my customer, the club, with the community. And let's face it, in, at the end of the day, the club wants to be a good corporate citizen, and by doing good things in the community, and we're not just talking about donating, but also offering their time, so that when the chef visits the school and does a cooking class, that's a community outreach program where we're connecting you know, the club and the community, the private and the prob- uh, public sectors, and the haves and the have-nots. And that's when I think things change. And again, you didn't hear me ask or say anything about government funding or grants or, or anything else. Now, if they're there, I don't have any problems um, working with that, but I'm not chasing those dollars because they come with a lot of strings. And more importantly, I don't think I need it. And I think that this is a model that that makes sense. So. You can be afraid freight farms and go out and sell boxes all day long, but that's not really what I'm I'm after. I mean, that's I'm looking for community, local-based solutions where we can meet them where they are. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. I, I, I got to tell you, I'm having more fun doing this because um, I've been with Fit to Be Kids for five years, and we watch, and we measure, and we see how a child's behavior will influence the family dynamics. Moms, dads, brothers, sisters are losing weight, why? Because the kid comes home and says, mommy, I don't want that anymore, don't buy that for me, and then it doesn't go in the cart. If it doesn't go in the shopping cart, it doesn't come into the pantry, and if it doesn't get in the pantry, it doesn't get eaten. So if we can change that behavior, because ultimately if you go back to the whole reason I'm doing this is I see this as a solution to our healthcare issues. It's not about insurance. It's about providing people with education and the the nutrition uh, to do prevention because prevention is the key and the secret to it is the nutrition and so once people get hooked on that then it's no longer a diet it's a lifestyle and that's really what I'm after is changing and if I can change five-year-olds at a young age and they can grow up to be healthy teenagers and healthy adults then I think long-term I'm doing what I really set out to do, which is change the way this world works when we look at you know, um, our health.
0: And that brings us to the end of Episode 3. If you'd like more information about Rick's company, you can go to GlobalGrowables.com. If you've got ideas on topics or speakers I should interview, let me know. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Allison. Thanks for listening.